Welcome to Before Showtime with Connor and Marcelo. This is Marcelo speaking. And this is Connor speaking. How are you doing, Connor? I'm doing all right. It's rainy and boring out, and I have to study for two research papers. Yeah, they, they're they piling the work now. Are you just, you just came back from break, Yeah, didn't I you? did. Oh. I was I was back from Jersey, and I got to visit the family, even though my mom got sick, and I got to get out of the house only a couple times, so... It was meh. It was kind of meh. And your mom got sick? That doesn't sound like a good time, dude. No. I hope she gets better, though. Today, what we'll be doing on this episode is three movie reviews, one of which is The Quiet Girl, which was Ireland's submission, and it was nominated for Best International Feature Film at the 95th Academy Awards. Then we're also going to follow that with Eight and a Half, and then end it off with Midnight Cowboy, 1969's Best Picture winner. Finally, at the very end of the episode, we will be doing a top five, at least top five for me. Connor, aren't you doing like a top ten? I'm doing a top five as well. I narrowed it down finally. Okay, so we're going to both be doing a top five needle drops in film, which can be really interesting because as anyone who watches movies know, music is a huge component into elevating a scene from being just mediocre to being timeless and yes, great. Yes, and a needle drop can honestly make or break a film at some point depending on the filmmaker's choices and depending on how well it's used they're often hard to get right and they're a fascinating art form because they are a piece of pre-existing media from another medium being used in the medium of film yeah to help elevate a scene right or to give it a tone that is a little bit more nuanced than it would be without the song or to make the scene a more hellish experience like in suicide squad yeah just just don't use it bad guys that's all we're saying um let's start with the quiet girl though connor just let's do our spoiler free review and then we're gonna follow it with a spoiler review for each of these films so right now this is a spoiler free section of the quiet girl so if you're planning on seeing any of these three films Look at the timestamp and skip that section. Yeah, because... Although, in all fairness, Eight and a Half and Midnight Cowboy are decades-old films, but with The Quiet Girl, it's a little more important if you are actually planning on seeing this film. Exactly. So, Might I I add, I saw this film at AMC in Georgetown one night, and it was opening night, and I kid you not, this was the film I saw that night on opening night instead of Scream 6 or 65. I was that cool and pretentious. You, you have priorities, and we respect it. At yeah. least I do. Yes, and I hate to say there was almost no one in the theater. No, really? Even though it got an Academy Award nomination. And it's was... opening night. Like, if anything, that's the time when people are going to go watch it, right? Yeah, I was, I was really disappointed by this because this is quite a good film that needs the support even with the oscar nomination i'm still surprised and a little worried that no one saw it so if it's if this film is playing near you which it's it's still in limited release so i would go see it and support it yeah go support foreign films guys because and independent films and any art house films because yeah Independent theaters and independent films need it in yeah. the age of Marvel and in a quote-unquote post-pandemic box office yeah. climate. I do have to say, though, I went to Landmark East Street to watch this, and it was a pretty good turnout, considering. And I know that theater tends to attract more the, of a niche. the more niche, more art house crowd, but 
you know, respect people coming out to see it at Landmark. Let's let's get into a little bit of a background of what The Quiet Girl is about. The Quiet Girl is about a nine-year-old Kate is living with a lot of siblings and their parents and her parents are they're not exactly they're not the nicest. They're not supportive, they, especially the father. They kind of neglect her, to say the least, in terms of just they don't really care that and, she's in the house. And, and even then, there's a bit of lingering childhood trauma here because she has trouble. She's called the quiet girl because she rarely, if ever, talks in class and is kind of ostracized by her schoolmates because of that. And she even wets the bed at a few points. Yeah, she has some she has some issues that she's struggling with even as a young girl. She ends up getting relocated basically, right Connor? Yes. To a, another family while I think her primary family is just wanting a break from her essentially, right? Because aren't they like pregnant with a girl? Yeah. And, and that's why, like, she's being sent away. That's that's also a little unclear in the movie. Yeah, the film say. the film definitely leaves a few more questions than answers, and definitely relies more on the visual storytelling than giving us clear plot points, which is something I actually liked about large chunks of the film. Yeah, it was a lot of use of we've used this term a lot, but um, visual storytelling, right? Not saying every single emotion or every single plot point you can kind of decipher it based on yeah, like this could, subtext this could be a silent film and you'd still know what it's about absolutely i, I think, love when films do that i think we especially gotta, nowadays i think we got to talk about katherine clinch as the lead actress at the age of 14 absolutely nailing this role she was great in this picture very very good she gives one of the better child performances i've seen in a while yeah because the difficulty in her role is like we said she doesn't really talk a lot so a lot of her acting comes through in her eyes and the subtle gestures she makes or the little the little reactions to what somebody is saying. I could really feel it from her end. And in all honesty, it feels like some of that is harder to do for an actor than even going over the top and showy. Oh, I think it's ten times harder because in when you start doing this a lot, Connor, you start to realize that dialogue and and even just like character acting that is written in the script helps helps the actor like in their process of learning the role and how to do it but in this case i don't think there was a ton of screen direction if i had to guess because it's mostly it very subtle felt a little improvisational at times yeah which i do have to say if there's one thing i were to nitpick about this film is the pacing is really really slow it, it is a slow film and a couple times that did detract slightly from it the overall experience was just a little underwhelming especially for a film that was i'm not saying this didn't deserve to get nominated but especially for a film that was nominated in international feature over decision to leave mind you yeah but we have to talk about the cinematography was fantastic in yeah, this film. so many of the scenes were at least nearly symmetrical and there were many long takes of just people in a room and it was still it it still gave me such a feeling of melancholy when i watched it yeah the, the green the green colors too right they were popping yeah i don't movie. think that i don't think that would really be there if there were just a loud argument scene like a marriage story in mm. this film which is something that any other movie like this would probably try to put in 
or they would make it overly dramatic with some of the plot points that are in the film, right, that get introduced later, which we will talk about in the spoiler section of this review. What did you think of the the parents, their acting and stuff? I thought they were great. Yeah, I especially want to shout out, uh, her name is Carrie Crowley, the woman who played the, not the mom of the girl, but the one taking her caretaker. care. Her caretaker. Yeah, she was fantastic. Uh, remember the scene, Connor, where she wets the bed, like you said? Her reaction to it was was flawless. That is how you perform a scene of, clearly we know the intention here is we don't want her to get super mad, but how do no. we play it in a way that maybe is a little bit new, right? Which I have to say, a lot of this movie, what surprised me about it was the little things of that the parents were doing, or like the caretakers in this case. They were they were not something I've seen very often in film. No, and I and I really respected that. And additional respect for this being shot in four by three, which adds to the almost intimacy of the story. Yeah, and and that beach scene, that beach scene, like it's very dark outside, but you can see everything crystal clear because somebody lit it correctly. I like it in movies when it's dark outside and you can actually see the actors. So mm-hmm. that's just good execution on the director's part, which shout out to the director. His name is Colm Byrid. Ooh, Byrid? Is that how you pronounce it? I'm not 100% sure. I'm butchering that last name, but... I apologize. This is a great, this is a great feature to have your name as the director. I will say that. Yes, and this, is, as far as I can tell, is the first film in the Irish language that I've seen or has really crossed over. Yeah, I mean, it is the first Irish film to be nominated for Best International Feature. Yeah, so. there is a little bit of English, but a large chunk of the dialogue. It's kind of half and half. Yeah. And hearing the Irish language was interesting because it didn't sound too far off with an, with from an Irish person speaking English. Yeah, I do cases. have to admit, though, in the beginning, it was nice, like, having subtitles because... Their accents were so It was thick. so thick. The they accents, were so thick and thick. It was, it was not even as... I think it was more thick than Banshee's hot take. I don't know if that's, like, what you it think. It was, especially since the way this, the audio is mixed... It doesn't go to Christopher Nolan levels of putting sound effects way over dialogue, but the dialogue was kind of quiet in this film, yeah, especially in the mix, so it helped to have subtitles. Definitely on purpose. Something kind of funny that I want to side plug here is I watched a, I watched a interview with the director, and it was with all the directors that were nominated for Best International Feature. And including um, uh, Edward Berger and and uh, the director of EO and everybody. Yeah, so he was actually having to was talk about EO. Was it one of those EO. Hollywood Reporter Directors Roundtable I don't ones? think so. I think it was just one of those, like, they got him together. Like an Academy panel discussion? Something like that. But he ended up he ended up having to review EO. That was his task during the panel. <laughs> and he, was, he said this really funny thing where he was like, I was surprised to watch EO and realize that my movie wasn't the quietest movie out of all the nominees, which I thought was kind of funny. Yeah. Especially for one that's called The Quiet Girl. Yeah, right? What do you want to go into the spoiler section now? Let's do it. So if anybody has not seen The Quiet Girl... Stop. Stop it now. Skip. Skip to the next part because we don't want to spoil this movie. Because it's still playing in some areas and it is fairly new... It only came out here in the States a couple months ago, 
and only i think only a couple weeks ago expanded to more theaters so i would i would definitely go watch it if you are planning to because this film as i said empty theater for my showing this could use your support yeah so spoiler section starting now wow that ending connor it hit me personally i don't know about you was it was a very touching conclusion certainly because you think it's gonna go one way where she's gonna reunite with her parents and possibly endure even more trauma which by the way um i think it's pretty clearly implied that the father at least was abusive to her definitely the first thing he says when she comes home after like three months of not months yeah she has a cold because she got wet in the water and like it was cold outside so she developed a sickness and she sneezes and the guy and the dad is like oh she sneezed all the time when she was at your place and they're like no she was completely nice like she was so cool he's like oh she's a nuisance here and it's like oh my god and there's also i i'll probably give a content warning in the description of this episode but given the wedding the bed scene it's also pretty implied that the dad molested her yeah, it, that's how I that could it. be an interpretation of it. I didn't interpret it that way. I thought more it was like verbal and psychological abuse than actual physical. But, you know, the wetting the bed doesn't typically happen unless you have some sort of physical trauma that you're going through, correct? Yes, and the finale, even though like I could kind of see it coming, I thought there was there was no way she's going to go go back to her parents. Because this is why I didn't think that. Because the story revolves around her caretaking parents. That's how I will coin it, I guess. Her caretaking parents have lost a child from drowning, which was super sad. And that's actually the thing in the the middle of the movie that I was like, oh, so this is what the story is about. This this family grieving the loss of the child, this child being neglected, and them bonding – over their weird circumstances, yeah, right? Yeah, and even even the main character, she almost drowns at one point in the middle of the film, and that is probably, like, the most suspenseful moment here. And I wonder, too, off screen do, you too. Think, do you think she did that on purpose, like, fell in the water because she was scared to go back home? Because remember, that was right before she was going to go back home. You, you can definitely read it that way. I can see that. Yeah. That scene... Although on... there can be a bit of... Given that she's younger there could be a little bit of curiosity there and a little bit of what was it like for this other child yeah i I just wanted to say this that scene with her on the beach with the the male caretaker character so powerful it gave me moonlight vibes because it was so well executed yeah with that and a bit of after sun i'm surprised i'm honestly surprised this wasn't a barry jenkins production with that sort of style it definitely had that aesthetic of you know, com- composing shots in a very aesthetically pleasing way mixed with, like, emotions coming from the lighting choices. Yeah, more more so emotions through visual storytelling than outright plot. Yeah. What did you think of the fact that when she does embrace her caretaking father at the end, the mother is crying in the car, not able to get out? I thought that was so powerful for me. Yeah, because they still have a little bit of attachment to their child that they didn't realize before. Until, at least they didn't realize it until she was deciding to not live with them anymore. They and didn't know how much they needed They needed their child. And I think what devastates the mother caretaker 
in particular is she knows for a fact this girl is not going to have a good time at home. Like, now that they're dropping her back there. No. Because she could see, like, the, the house is a little bit in shambles because there's, like, four other kids. They just had a newborn. The mom is, like, trying her best but can't contain the dad's and, anger. And they have the TV blaring all the time just for no reason. Yeah, and I think it's kind of mentioned that she doesn't get fed, like, normally. No. Because that's, like, a big thing she starts realizing is, like, oh, people eat meals, like, at specific times. Yeah, and there's a major plot point later on in the film involving a biscuit. Yeah. There's a scene where the father caretaker, after they had had a fight, Instead of, you know, slapping her or doing something that her father would actually do, he gives her a, a dessert and says, I'm sorry. Without having to say, I'm sorry, he gives her a little dessert. Aww. Which I do have to say, so though, um, kind of going into a critique of it, I'm not sure I needed flashbacks to that particular scene or other ones towards the end of the film when she's, like, running yeah, in slow-mo. Yeah, not quite. I think it would have been more powerful. You just keep her running, and then she <laughs> meets with the dad. You keep in the moment. I guess so. I can see why. I, I understand the use of the flashback there, but I don't know. It, it was already a, a little bit emotionally sentimental in that moment. Do you really need to throw in flashback to make it, like, even more emotional? I'm not sure. Yeah. So, but either way, it was worth seeing this on opening night instead of Scream 6, which I did eventually end up watching. We're not reviewing it, by the way. <laughs> I haven't even seen it. I, so. I saw it, and a lot of people really enjoyed it. I wasn't as big a fan of it. I think this franchise kind of strayed away from what it was trying to be, which was uh, the satirical, fresh, like meta horror that was kind of against the idea of making sequels and made fun of sequels, and now <sighs> it's becoming one of those itself. I don't like movies when they make fun of the movie that they're in it's just not a good recipe for me personally let's pivot to eight and a half connor wow yeah what a pivot but let's pivot this may have been one of my most anticipated watches definitely of the year but probably of all time do you want to give a little backstory of what this film is about for the viewers that haven't seen it yes for those who don't know uh federico fellini the great italian filmmaker made this film as an expression of his frustration with writer's block, essentially. And he personified that in the character of Guido, who is also a film director who's struggling to get his next project off the ground. And we, we don't even, we barely even see sets of his film. That's how, that's how much of a, just an embryo his next production is. And the reason it's called Eight and a Half is... It has a double meaning. First of all, it's a film about making films, and it was, in a way, Federico Fellini's eighth and a half film because he directed a segment in an anthology before that and made a few other films. So it was kind of a little nugget for all the filmmakers and critics and audiences who were already pretty familiar with his work. And part of the reason why this film has lasted so long and gained so much praise among critics and filmmakers in particular was because it was one of the first really relatable films about making films also it's extremely surrealist for the yes, time it's a I'm magic assuming. it's a it's a piece of magical realism which was such a unique approach to this type of film especially for its time 
only it feels like only really Bergman was really doing that a lot in his work with movies like The Seventh Seal, Wild Strawberries, certainly. And there, half of the film is told through dream sequences and very odd dream sequences that are sometimes kind of funny, sometimes sometimes very ethereal, and it's all shot in beautiful black and white. Yeah. Can we talk about that intro scene, Connor? Because I knew instantly once I saw that first scene we were in for a treat. Yeah. The film opens vividly with the character of Guido in a traffic jam and even to the point where it looks like he's suffocating in his car and needs to get out and this being clearly a metaphor for him being in a creative rut and then he gets out of the car and magically flies through the air in a special effects shot for the time. We're not kidding. He literally starts flying in the air. The camera goes up and you're with him. Yes, and then his doctors in real life appear in this dream and then they pull him down and most of the scene is without any dialogue or sound effects or even music. It's mostly silent. You can and you can hear just, his choking like so yeah. vividly. I remember that I was a little bit concerned. I was like, oh, okay, a little okay. concerned about him. And once he comes down, it's complete silence, and you just hear him gasping for breath as he wakes up. And that is one of easily one of the most iconic opening scenes in cinema history, and definitely one of the most influential. The shot of from the point of view of his foot getting tugged down by his doctors who show up in the dream is one of the most striking shots I've seen from the time and seen period that was really that really was a tone setter for what a purely magical experience this film was going to be and there's there is a reason why filmmakers like Scorsese and David Lynch have championed this film I haven't I seen I haven't seen Bardo, but I heard Bardo heavily rips this like yes, in terms of gets, influence. And it gets even more out there and it's it's no eight and a half. It's no eight and a half. I don't I don't think many even many certain films even like certain this, costumes in Bardo, like clearly influenced by the eight and a half costumes. Definitely. Correct? And this has some of the some very fashionable costume design, especially for its time. There's a scene where one of the dream sequences, Marcello Mastroianni as Guido is straight up in a toga during one of the dream sequences. Which can I add? One of the most bizarre ones. Which can I add? Great performance by Marcello Mastroianni playing a director who has a ton of charm, but is clearly off the rails in terms of he doesn't know what he's doing. Right no, now. and he's also, he kind of lets his own creativity get in the way of things. He's, he's sleeping with other people now he he he's not in a great place at the moment and he's having all these strange dreams some of his catholic guilt is coming back to him when he flashes back to images of him as a little boy at his old school yeah and we kid you not audience like when he's having visions of himself as a little boy a little boy appears like right in front of him kind of as an actor, yes, and when in he's having when he's having visions about his estranged wife, she shows up right in front of him and starts berating him right in front of him. Yeah, and can I add too? I liked that the movie goes over certain lifestyle choices for film directors that maybe 
would have been shied away from if the filmmaker didn't want to get too personal with no, it. No, including it was it was ballsy of Fellini to even make yeah. this, especially when he did. Including the the fact that directors tend to go around the town when it comes to females or their partners, whether that's female or male. Right? He's a womanizer. Yeah. You know? So that's and he not becomes one partly due to as a side effect of his clout in the industry because he's he's this he's already a famous movie director he's already being mobbed by the press and that's causing even more inner turmoil in one of the later dream sequences he's straight up like hiding under a table from from a bunch of scheming paparazzi and press agents which by the way fun fact the term paparazzi was actually coined as a result of another Fellini film, La Dolce Vita. I did not know there that. There was a character named uh, Paparazzo who was a paparazzi journalist, and that's where the term yep. was first really coined. Interesting. So he, so, and Fellini being the intellectual celebrity that he was at the time, he, he, he knew. I have to give him credit for making this his his next movie because I'm pretty sure he was feeling a lot of pressure from the studios, from just the world in general on what his next movie was going to be because this followed up La Dolce Vita, right? I think it did, yes. So, you know, they were watching him because La Dolce Vita kind of was his big, big movie at the time. Yeah, actually, no. He did uh, Evil Tony and La Strada. La Strada, I think, was the film that really, really made him a superstar. Mm. And La Dolce Vita only got that further and became his most iconic work probably and that's what got everyone knocking at his door and wondering what his next film was going to be and he was like you know what fuck it i'm going to make a film about writer's block essentially and just the stresses of being a film director because you have so many different departments that you have to handle and it's chaotic to say the least right yeah, it's it's a hassle. And once we even get to the film set in one of the another one of the most striking images when the all the catering cars go there, it's really just scaffolding. Yeah. It hasn't even been fully built yet and he's still trying to figure out what he's going to do and he's trying to make this sci-fi movie somehow with the material he's given. And, and, and I like how the press, too, was like, what are you doing, dude, with this huge scaffolding and this, like, massive land area that you clearly, like, bought out because the studio was giving him money? And he didn't even know how to respond, it seemed, right? He didn't know what he was doing. Yeah, he he had all these vague ideas in his head, but in no way did he know how to put them on the screen. And it even leads to his later frustrations with the studio system because he is in a pest he not pest screening a, a pest screening mm-hmm. if you want to use it that way mm-hmm. of producers a test screening for some of the screen tests for his next movie and he straight up fantasizes about hanging a film producer with a noose yeah yeah he has some interesting thoughts in the movie for sure i do want to say this before we move on to the spoiler section of this review I actually really appreciated them focusing on Guido. And yes, he has other females in his life, clearly. Yeah, a large chunk of the film focuses on the women in his life. But it, although, re- although it really, I, yeah. Although I will say 
the one one thing I do like about it is that the women aren't necessarily caricatures, except for the object of his fantasies, which it turns out to be Claudia Cardinale, who's who fetches him a pail early on and doesn't appear until later on when he decides to cast her as his muse, the lead in his film. And even then, like, we don't even know if she's real. Yeah, no, it was a it was just an impeccably made movie, which I kind of want to ask this question, Connor, before we go to spoilers. Was there any flaws that you had with this film? Because I'm having difficulty thinking of any. I don't think so. I was, and this comes with a lot of films that are considered acclaimed. Like, I I didn't want this to end up being movie homework, but it. I wasn't bored during this, no, even though it was a two and a half hour film because it was so stylish and it was so... See, unlike The Quiet unique. Girl, this did not feel slow to me in terms of the pacing. And yeah, that is impressive considering this movie was released in 1963. So Yeah, it's a really it's a timeless film. It has it certainly has has held up and that is part of the reason why it's become so beloved. It it, it was I think it was even ahead of its time in a lot of respects. Some of those filmmaking techniques I know were extremely difficult to pull off. Like some of he... how did he, how did he go in the air with the camera in the beginning, with the with the yeah. technology they had at the time? I'm I think he used a and, crane, and right? And with some of the and with some of the visual choices, some of the the editing that ranges from quick and chaotic to very deliberate and slow. And going into those dream sequences, I'd imagined was even for art house was a pretty bold move to go that far into magical realism very bold because and it's to, narratively kind of random right cuz the you, visuals he's yeah seen. it's not necessarily it's it's a bit of a loose plot if you can if you look at it at face value and you can go from just a scene of him having having a dinner conversation with a producer all of a sudden to him back as a little boy fantasizing about this very large prostitute and having more Catholic guilt about that. Yeah, it's just a it's just a very good introspective piece on the mind of a filmmaker and what goes on and maybe his interpretations aren't literal. They're more psychological and they're being presented on the screen as literal, but Yes. As an audience, don't go into this movie expecting a ton of plot. You are going for a character study for sure. You are you are not going in to see even him having like too big of an arc, you're going into to like get into a peak, get a peek into the mind of Guido as a creative and as a human. And one one piece of symbolism I noticed was his sunglasses. Ooh, really? What what do you what do you interpret the sunglasses? Yeah, I as? see. I can see that as being no pun intended. I can see the sunglasses as having somewhat literally and figuratively blinding him to to both his 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 normal everyday life with his with the imbalance between his work and his personal life and as just Marcello Mastroianni looking cool as hell he's in a suit the sunglasses go very well with the suit is yes. what I'll say there's and this is one of the best-looking black-and-white films I've ever seen. Easily. I'm not even going to deny that. Like, no. I understood after finishing this film why so many filmmakers take influence from it. And I was going in already knowing that was probably going to be like 
happening, but I have to say I was I was bought in after finishing the movie, even with that knowledge beforehand, because it's just so expertly done. Yes. Do you want to do? You want some? There's some stunning wide shots and stunning close-ups and stunning long takes and stunning use of shadow and silhouette. You the one dance scene at the beginning of the, f- the film between him and Barbara Steele, who's kind of an underrated actress who I've seen in some old horror films from that time by Mario Bava. That whole scene was ripped in Pulp Fiction. Yeah, good ours, good ours, Sparrow. Great ours, Steele. If you haven't already gotten the gist, if you are into movies, this is a must watch. Yeah, I think this is if you're aspiring to make films this is should be near the top of your list because it is one of the most the greatest and most influential films in cinema history yeah it is that it is that influential and that important and just just a damn fine film to begin with so for those that have seen it here comes the spoiler section ready spoiler section starting now What'd you, how'd you interpret that ending, Connor, of him kind of holding hands with a bunch of people and kind of dancing at, in a at, circle? In the circus. Yeah. A bunch of circus performers show up. I interpret that as partly a, a reoccurring motif in his work because his earlier film, La Strada, was a melancholic tale about a circus clown. And here he reuses the circus motif to kind of almost show the chaos of both his imagined guido's imagination and of the unnecessary spectacle that his filmmaking dream is starting to become although it can also be interpreted as a fun escape from the turmoil of actually making that film because in some ways he more or less gives up on his vision he definitely gives up and it gets too much for him towards the end and we can see that even in like the visuals and sound design it gets even more overwhelming as we hear all the see seeing here all these all this press and all the people in his life too coming at him from on all cylinders asking him what his next film is going to be what are his political views even what are what does he think of religion what does he think of this what do you think of that and he's kind of enough and there's he even has a vision of unaliving himself at one point yeah and it that circus scene is really like the culmination of the surrealism that has come from the rest of the film and we ended off with this elaborate dance sequence and set to a great score by nino rota who did the godfather music and it's it it certainly is a memorable finale. Yeah, I I interpreted it personally as his acknowledgement that he needs people in his life. Yes, because his brain can't contain his ideas. It's very yes, clear because he's in making this dream project of his. He knows that he has completely alienated most of his friends, family, girlfriends, his wife, and his. And his followers and his fans. I even think his wife, who the character's name is Carla, yes, even says to him, I know what you're trying to say, Guido. And basically what he was trying to say is you need people, but you feel like you have to push them away in order to create your art, which is 
honestly something I personally feel at times when yeah. I when I go into the booth and I, think, I start writing. You know, I think I think any artist can feel like that mm-hmm. at any point. Like not just a film director or screenwriter. I think art whether we whether we like it or not can sometimes be a lonely field oh i think it is an extremely lonely field especially if you're a writer Oof. yeah right right you, you don't really if i don't know if you want to go to a giant lodge hotel in the hills of colorado and write your next novel only for it to come out as all work and no play make jack a dull boy if you see what i mean yeah no writing can get you to levels of psychological torment that you cannot even imagine because you're so isolated trying to conjure up ideas that are not necessarily tangible. Yes, and this film and its use of magical realism very much influenced another great film, uh, Spike Jones's adaptation, which is also which is also a loosely autobiographical story by Charlie Kaufman about his writer's block and him trying to get this novel about a flower made into a movie. Yeah, I can definitely... This is kind of goes into my next question for you, Connor. What influence does this movie have on other ones that you can, like, even pinpoint on the top of your head? Definitely Ed Wood Ed by Wood. Tim Burton. Although, in that case, it is a biopic of the the infamously bad filmmaker Ed Wood, played by Johnny Depp, who is hilarious in it. It's it's a biopic, but it has several elements of magical realism and even some his some some may argue some glaring historical inaccuracies. And the film is shot like one of Ed Wood's own movies and it's really just an experience to watch unfold, akin to Eight and a half. I can see this having an influence on Babylon as well. Absolutely. I was going to actually say that, especially with the costumes, especially right? You, especially you being the big Babylon stand. Yeah, I'm a Babylon you, stand. I'll, I'll come out and say it. I'm surprised it. you hadn't mentioned it Damien earlier. Damien Chazelle? There we go, dude. That's how you direct a movie. Yeah. I, I have to say, Connor, this movie, in terms of the magical realism, really reminded me of Mulholland Drive. Uh, a film by David Lynch. Lynch. Lynch can definitely be seen in this film. Definitely some buds of his of his style potentially coming. Especially here. since Mulholland kind of follows that structure of there's not really a thorough plot. It's more just experiences. Yeah. And that film like gets even deeper and denser into surrealism than even Eight and a Half did. As Lynch typically does, right? Have you even have you seen Blue Velvet? Yes. I did not understand that movie. I'll come out and say it straight up. It was so hard to understand. The suburbs are fucked up, and that's all you need to know. Yeah. Any any other last thoughts in the spoiler section that you want to mention, Connor? I don't know what can really be said about this film that hasn't already been said. Yeah. How like, do many we even times? need? Do we even need to say like Nino Rota score is fantastic? I think I think a lot of this stuff goes without saying. Really, there's a reason why this film is a considered one of the essentials. It it. Even at the time, Connor, when it was released in con, people were universally in agreement that yeah, this was a, got, a touchstone picture. And it ended up getting – it got quite a bit of acclaim, and it got five Academy Award nominations, including Best Director, Best Original Screenplay, and Best Art Direction. And it won two for Foreign Language Film, Lock, and for Costume Design. So yeah. it, there was even – this wasn't – I don't know if I'd even say this was a sleeper hit. It was already 
it I think a lot of people already knew that this movie was gonna last a while yeah and was gonna have the seismic effect on film that it did why do you think the director Fellini chose this specific aspect ratio a 185 instead of a 239 I think it's because that was starting to become a little more in fashion and partly to I think it was partly to distinguish from La Dolce Vita which he shot in scope and was a an even grander do you, you want to give a little this. context to the audience that doesn't know what 239 and 185 uh, really means 239 235 or 239 to 1 is cinema scope that's that's widescreen and 185 is usually the aspect ratio that's on widescreen TVs and usually yeah. back then they would just shoot like a four perforation four sprocket hole frame with 35 millimeter film and they would use mats in the projectors to get that aspect ratio and i'm guessing i think part of the reason why fellini chose 185 instead of scope was to show the tallness of the set that guido creates i also think it's used as a way to symbolize the world kind of crushing him down not into cinemascope wide, you know, you can see all the borders. The world is literally crumbling on top of him and he can't he can't contain like all the chaos, especially in his own head. What, yeah. that's why I think and, he chose the smaller aspect ratio. Making it a somewhat narrow a, a somewhat taller narrower aspect ratio definitely gives the story just a little more intimacy. It adds that isolationism of an artist that mm. he's clearly trying to dissect in in the film. So there's yeah. a so yeah, Scorsese won't shut up about this film for a good reason. Is it one of the greatest uh, Italian movies you've ever seen, Connor? Hell yeah! I think it might be. I I think I'm Probably on that same the. boat. I I'm on that same boat. Maybe I think this the. is top five Italian movies I've ever seen, and that is that's a. I don't think it tops Bicycle Thieves for me personally. I love Bicycle, Bicycle Thieves. Bicycle Thieves is great, but. It came close. It was coming. And Bicycle Thieves and this make for kind of an interesting contrast because Bicycle Thieves is flat out into neorealism and was a response to old Hollywood at the time. Whereas with Fellini, he still had a little bit of a sentimental side to him and still wanted to make his films a little more, just a little more magical Definitely. than neorealism, but still have some aspects of it, especially earlier on in his career. From what I recall, I haven't watched the whole thing, but La Strada is a little more into neorealism and drama. All right. Well, I think that wraps up our thoughts on eight and a half. We will now go into everybody's min- talking at me. We're going into midnight cowboy Spoiler free review. All right, yes. Connor. Do you want? Do, can I do the story? Can I do a little bit of backstory of what this movie's about? Yeah, you can. So, as we've said before, this movie was released in 1969, and nice. it centers around a cowboy by the name of Joe Buck, played by John Voight. Uh, I have to say this straight up: I'm not the hugest John Voight fan when it comes to his personality, but I or his politics. I'm actually kind. I actually find it kind of funny that he actually took this role way back when. He would not take that role now with him, you know, supporting the January 6th insurrection and doing a video for the RNC and basically becoming a far right 
mouthpiece. Fun fact, though, he was liberal before. Like, even uh, doing with Jane Fonda some of those anti-war Vietnam campaigns. I I wonder what happened to his brain. I don't know. People change. The money changes people as well. But I will say say this, Connor. John Voight, despite his personality being a little iffy, can act. And I have to say that... He could. I have to say that as well as Dustin Hoffman... Dustin Hoffman plays a character named uh, Ratso Rizzo, who's in New York, and he has a disability where he can't really walk correctly, and he's just coughing a lung off every scene, right? He's not well he's at all. He's very sick. He is very sick. And that creates such a contrast between him and John Voight, who's this kind of masquerading as this like macho cowboy stud yeah, from but, the South. Cause for, and for, yeah, for context, he's from the South, travels to New York to start a new life, and cannot figure out how to earn money. He's the worst hustler because he thinks he's like able he to he's get shit. every single girl in on the street, and he clearly can't. He he doesn't know what he's doing. No, and and that ends up leading to him confiding in, in Rato Rizzo. And that's where the bond kind of shapes form and it is the movie i think this movie is more about friendship than actually like by the numbers a cowboy that goes to new york that's that's like the that's like the minor details i think the core of the story is this friendship between two outsiders in new york just trying to survive because guess what in new york people are kind of doing their own thing tunnel visioned in their own ways and you can see this in this film because Nobody even looks at Rizzo a single time, if I recall. They don't even acknowledge his existence. And when they do, they marginal. And when they do, they scoff at him for even being like near them. Yeah, and the whole relationship. What part of what makes it even more touching is that they're both, in a way, they're both kind of trying to escape from their own environments. Because, um, because. Uh, Joe's already gone. He's already escaped. He's already gone to the city, whereas Rizzo wants to go to Florida and yeah. escape the turmoil of the city. So it turns into that cross escapism. I love how the movie didn't overcomplicate like why they wanted to go to Florida. It was merely because, one, it's warm, and two, they got coconuts and it'll get me healthier. It's not much like more detailed than that, right? And I love how the simplicity of it makes you root for them instantly. Yes. What do you think of Dustin Hoffman? We got to talk about. He him. was phenomenal. In for this those picture. that don't know, this is his follow up to the graduate. To the graduate. Imagine that that his his star making role. Imagine following that up. He was really on a roll at this time, and a uh, an absolute like acting heavyweight. Even the director Mike Nichols of the Graduate was talking to Hoffman, obviously, like, during this time, and he said, do not take the Midnight Cowboy role. If you do, you ruin everything that you just build by being the nice guy in my movie. You're going to throw that away. and By being all, uh, hey, I'm walking here, I'm walking here. But Which, Hoffman, Hoffman has said in interviews, like, I'm I'm doing character actor stuff. I'm not going to be typecast, and this is my way of, no. of doing that. Yeah, and fun fact, the, the oft-parodied I'm walking here scene completely ad-libbed completely he, um one of, one, one of the greatest ad-libbed lines in cinema in and my, in my opinion it was com- hoffman was actually shouting at at a cab that was about to hit him and 
that reaction felt so in character that he that they just left it in and that may be probably the most iconic ad-libbed scene in film history i think so it's it's everyone knows it even if you haven't seen the movie you know i'm walking here everyone knows it i have to say this too it kind of gets that new york realism down to a t in this movie. yes it is not a polished looking film at all with it, it's even shot visuals. somewhat cinema verite style correct yes and it is certainly one of the more experimental films to have won best picture definitely definitely and it straight up goes into surrealism and psychedelia and changes film socks it goes into black and white there are match cuts there are the soundtrack too is so 60s like, and so it's 60s. almost the soundtrack is almost all mostly needle drops fairly sparse score by john barry and a lot besides of, that harmonica theme hits the the harmonica does. theme for the movie is very very well played by the composer yeah this picture was one of the few one of the this was around the new Hollywood movement was around the time where Hollywood finally started catching on to counterculture and finally started realizing this is this is why it's gotten such become such a big subculture in in America and why and also why European cinema hit because this is one of the more openly French new wave influenced pictures that were getting made at the time it doesn't feel like an american film really i didn't i couldn't tell like and maybe it's because the director is british yes which is something and to john know. schlesinger and an openly gay man making a film that also depicts homosexuality for the time and in great britain it was still illegal to be gay before there was brokeback mountain there was midnight cowboy yes and and you thought you thought um Brokeback also had vitriol around it on its initial release. This film got an X rating blasphemy, from the MPAA. Dude. Absolute blasphemy from the MPAA. Yes. What are you doing? And there this, was not even a single there was a, instance where there I was like, like brief, why? <sighs> there were like brief sex scenes that happened to be, be between. They were done comedically, though, too. Man and woman and just like just between men and that's and they were pretty tame and Although, for context, this was back when the MPAA rating system was a little a little looser, and this was when this was right after the end of the production code officially. This was when Bunny and Clyde and and films like this and, and The Wild Bunch and Clockwork Orange started pushing more boundaries when it came to like sex and violence in cinema. And that's also back when the X rating was still was still kind of in vogue because this was right before the porn chic movement where yeah. porn started getting bigger as an industry and Deep Throat came out and then because the reason why this happened was because the MPAA did not trademark the X rating and so porn films started using the X and then it started to get frowned upon commercially. And this and Clockwork Orange and Last Tango in Paris were among the relatively few, like, mainstream, like, known films at the time to, like, get acclaim. 
with an X rating. So it was still possible, but then I, there I was think a the X rating, it. weirdly enough, for this particular film helped it when it came to box office. Because oh, I'm certainly. looking here, this movie was made for 3.2 million. It made 44 million. It was a big hit for a buddy drama. Like I will take that for 1969. Yeah, this certainly would not be a hit now. It would probably go straight to streaming if it were. I think people now. were intrigued. Like, why did they give this an X rating? Right. And- and not for much reason no, other than stupid reason. gay. And even even John Wayne had a few uh, choice words about this film. Oh, he did not he, like it. He, <laughs> he called the main characters the F-slur. Yeah. If Honestly, if John Wayne... I have a bit of a complicated relationship with John Wayne and his work. If, if he doesn't like it, then a movie did its job. He also, he had similarly unkind things to say about High Noon, which was an attack on McCarthyism. Yeah. To be fair, too, he did get name-dropped, like, in the movie. As a, remember when Rizzo's like, that cowboy thing doesn't work in New York? And he's like, yeah. but John Wayne's a cowboy? It's like, that's not the point, He dude. got triggered. You're in a different part of the country, right? Yeah, he got triggered. Let's pivot to the spoiler section, because I really want to delve into certain scenes in this movie that I didn't want the audience to get spoiled on. So no. starting now, spoiler section, Midnight Cowboy. First off, let's let's talk about the ending. We have to talk about that ending. I fucking bawled at the ending. <sighs> that was such a such a it powerful punched me in the gut. It's such a so powerful much. death scene in a film because there's a lot of death scenes in movies where you know, characters are surrounding them and they're all crying. And this one is just Joe Buck is cradling his friend who's now dead. And everybody just leaves. Yeah. For Florida, just just gets off off the bus like normal, just assuming that he just passed out or something. Yeah. Some context is Joe. They Joe get to Joe, Florida because Joe had to literally beat up one of his clients to a pulp, steal his money, and was like, "We need to go to Florida instantly because Rizzo's dying." So they go, and Rizzo is on his last leg, even pees on the on the bus there, right? On yeah. the bus ride there. And he he doesn't make it, and it's sad. Because the thing is, they essentially do... At, at first, it seems like they achieved their goal. They they went to Florida, finally. They finally got that escape. and But the thing is, Rizzo only got a glimpse of that escape before before his in his last moments. Yeah, that line too when he was like, "Thanks, Joe." When Joe was like trying to cover him up to keep warm, so powerful for me because I think Rizzo hadn't experienced kindness a lot in his life, and Joe gave it to him unconditionally, right? Yeah. Which I want to say, do you think? Do you think either of the characters were gay, Connor? Because they don't explicitly say it in the movie. I'm not sure even. My interpretation, and I thought a it's little, not church, I thought so. somewhat, but. Yeah, my interpretation is Joe's gay, Joe Buck's gay. Yeah, and Rizzo, Rizzo, I'm not sure. I'm not sure, but Rizzo knows that he's gay is what I'm gonna go with, because it's just the way that Rizzo reacts when he says like that cowboy thing is, you know. Yeah. He says the f word. The f. He says the f slur a few times in it. Yeah, the f slur. So he's not initially completely accepting. I don't think if Rizzo was gay, he would be saying it like that. And Joe's denial of it just kind of confirms it to me that he's probably gay because even in the scene in the theater when they're there's a scene in the middle of the movie where joe is hustling and ends up getting a college student to basically go down on him yeah 
and he's watching a movie, it does show an explosion of like fireworks on the screen, which I'm like, does that is that implying that he liked it? And like mm. he's trying to restrain it because in the scene you can kind of read it like that if you watch yeah, the movie. Yeah, it, it's up to similar debate for their sexuality to Brokeback Mountain, where there are different interpretations for their sexuality. But either way, like it both end up becoming labeled as that gay cowboy movie that won all those Oscars. Kudos Which, though. This is more. It, there's obviously more to both of these pictures than that. Kudos to the screenplay written by Waldo Salt for not. Which won an Academy Award. Not taking the easy bait and just having them gay, or like having that be the drama of the story. It's yeah, really like about ex- the friendship. It's not about their yeah. romantic attraction towards one another. It's more about the bond that these two characters end up having, ultimately, more than the sexual aspect of it. Yeah. That really makes the story. And you can... This could have only happened in the late 60s, early 70s in the new Hollywood movement. The very first and only film to get an X rating and win Best Picture. Flex, dude. Flex. Hard flex. This was... This, I think... If, if Bonnie and Clyde and In the Heat of the Night and The Graduate and 2001 hadn't already confirmed that and and the wild bunch and butch cassidy and easy rider which is a pretty similarly freeform movie i can see easy rider in this for around sure. the same time if those hadn't already confirmed that hollywood was in its new wave and that the old the way of old hollywood the assembly line system was pretty much done in favor of auteur filmmaking. This was even further confirmation of that. Yeah, because remember there's a section of this story where it's heavily implied Joe Buck was molested as a kid by his own grandmother, Yeah, which is intense to say the least. And I think the movie portrayed it very respectfully. It's not overt. It's more through flashback, very experimental. They change even the type of film stock yeah. they're using, right? The colors are completely, like, altered. Yeah, and I don't think until until everything everywhere all at once, this might have been the most flat-out experimental, least accessible film to win Best Picture. I'd say so. I mean, some of those cuts of... Remember when Joe is witnessing literally his girlfriend getting gang-raped in the, in the film? Some of those cuts are extremely experimental, but they work in the context of the scene. And when and the scene where they're all at this completely psychedelic, drug infused hippie party, mm-hmm. it that you could be on acid while watching this. I have to say though, it wasn't as distracting to me as say Easy Rider, where Easy Rider it's a little bit too overt at times. The psychedelia where Peter Fonda is taking it in a graveyard and you're just like, oh my God, can you be more overt with these with these editing techniques? I I thought they were more... Here, at least more they respectful. were more I don't restrained. Know. Yeah, more restrained. That's a better word, for sure. Certainly. And speaking of, speaking of Midnight Cowboy, it has one of the most iconic needle drops I in I know, I'm glad we didn't spoil it for people in, because this is a great opening In the to form the of Everybody's Talking by Harry Nilsson as, as Joe Buck goes to the city. Yeah. And this, the way I interpret this needle drop is, is kind of, I, I interpret it when I first saw the film as, as evoking Joe Buck's sexual repression. That's interesting. From the time 
because he knows that there's there's this there are mostly straight people around him and as you said earlier like joe buck out of the two is is the gay one and possibly 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 and it's juxtaposed with him having this persona of the uber masculine cowboy stud and at and but it can also show like how known he is like within his community so it has so many different layers to it that already make a memorable needle drop even more memorable and so much so that it was this whole this whole opening was memorably spoofed in Borat. <laughs> yeah. I have to say for the opening song, I didn't really connect the sexual aspect that you're talking about. It was more for me. He's a kind of guy that no matter which community he is in, he doesn't listen to what they're saying because he's in his own world almost. Yeah. He lives this life where he thinks he's a stud that attracts all the women in the world and he doesn't attract a single one in this movie and when he does he has to pay the woman after hustling them which is he got hustled himself right he may not be much of a cowboy but, but he sure is one hell of a stud <laughs> such a great line i have to say this too brenda vaccaro who plays the woman that ends up hustling joe in that scene was fantastic yes. i know she doesn't have a ton of screen time but for the little time she does she is so freaking good as uh i think she came from broadway too she's not typically a film actress so yeah it was it was quite a performance i must say it left a mark on me for sure and speaking of everybody's talking and that needle drop here's the final section of the episode all right do you want to explain connor like what we're gonna do for this section so what we are each going to do marcelo and i based off of our us championing the memorable use of everybody's talking in midnight cowboy we are going to lay down our top five personal let's go greatest needle drops in film let's do it let's go all right do you want to do where i say five you say five i say four you say four yeah let's explain why okay for my fifth pick or the fifth ranking of my needle drops in film personal favorites i'm gonna go night call by kavinsky from the film drive released in 2011 starring Uh ryan gosling i think that needle drop opening scene is it it definitely is such a it definitely sets the tone for that film that that hypnotic neon infused just feeling that kind of washes over you as like right from the opening scene of drive and the needle drops in that whole film are just as a whole damn near perfect yeah the reason i like that one in particular because like you said there's Multiple. I like the Electric Youth one. In oh, particular. you you like that one a little more. I like we this one though. Human <laughs> yeah, that one that one's iconic. This one though fits his character more. This juxtaposition between the neon, fantastical elements and just the straight. I'm a sentimental guy that just wants love. Like there's something inside you. That's like his calling of I just want a stable life, but I can't get it because in my line so- of work. And even the song that plays like later on when he's when he's in the 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 mechanics office and like that even the lyrics of that track like i don't eat i don't sleep i do nothing but think of you you can interpret it as a little on the nose but with the sound of these all these tracks and 
just that film is kind of a masterclass in how to approach a film soundtrack and a score and all that to really get into the head of your character and to just wash an ambient atmosphere over the whole viewing experience. And you can't tell me Night Call by Kavinsky doesn't instantly put you into the world of Drive. Like, in two minutes, you're already like, okay, I know what we're going to go through for the next two hours. I don't need a whole 10-minute scene of them warming me up. I just play Kavinsky, and I know where we're going. Yeah. I thought it was fantastic. The music does all the work. What's your number five pick? My number five is of a somewhat more recent film than Call Me... That I already gave it away. It's Mystery of Love by Sufjan Stevens from Call Me By Your Name. Oh, is it... So that's not... There is another needle drop song in Call Me By Your Name, which is Love My Way. By Psychedelic Furs. I did not actually pick that one. Interesting. Even though that was the track that got, as far as I can tell, the bigger boost from that film. I I picked this because it kind of... First of all, it blends in with the already existing soundtrack that Sufjan Stevens is... It's used pretty heavily throughout the film, and I feel like it definitely adds more of that wistfully melancholic atmosphere to the scene and like don't tell me you didn't well up at least a little just thinking about that it's definitely a more emotional needle drop than love my way because love my way is played in a in a scene where elio is watching the, the cannibal watching army hammer's character dancing with a woman and he kind of gets jealous before, right before eating that woman yeah obviously yeah but yeah i I think you're correct like the needle drop you chose is a little bit more emotional and therefore might have to go with the film better because that movie's about you know long lost love in the summer right and the time of summer ending things right i've I've been through that and the song itself being a a very like again kind of moody like simon and garfunkel-esque number definitely adds that just adds to the feels and who hasn't been there right where i think your song in particular kind of talks about time being the the biggest villain when it comes to relationships because Mm -hmm. sometimes when the summer ends you can't stay with the person you want to because that's how life works sometimes and and you know what also prevents it from working what's that your partner turning out to be a cannibal. Oh my God. Army Hammer. I, I ate I, them. I think I think he made a mistake <laughs> with those DMs. Is all I'm gonna. He should not have DM'd. Yeah, yeah. Use use uh use WhatsApp next time, dude. You can delete it. Yeah. What's your number four? <laughs> What's number four? I this might be a hot take because hmm. it's such a recent film, mm-hmm. but I'm going with. Something in the Way by Nirvana from The Batman. Let's go. Something's in my ass. Underneath the bridge. Yeah. Okay, let's talk about why, though, because it, it got me. I think it's, it's gotten me. Well, obvi- it's, it's, it's become iconic due to Batman. Yeah. I thought the use of it was so on point because the interpretation of this new Bruce this Wayne. is, I think, the darkest a live-action Batman has He's gotten. a Kurt Cobain that didn't kill himself, essentially. That's his character. He's a walking, like, Kurt Cobain that's massively depressed because he has not gone over his parents being annihilated in front of him. And I think that song kind of perfectly sums up together his character of, I feel like I want to just, like, rip 
the world apart, but I'm containing it because I know it's just not the way and, to go. And he's using the character of the Batman to kind of both, both, both vent that and and cope with it as a superhero. Exactly. And do I need to the, even add that he's the, riding a motorcycle, listening to something in the way as like there's some voiceover like I don't think he actually a, listens to it though because it's a non-diegetic. Track. Yeah, yeah, maybe. I think he probably does, like, when, like, he's not on on our movie screen. It definitely though. does define him as a character, and it also got memed to death. Yeah, I know. That's why I was like, do I put this at my number <laughs> yeah, four? I but was, I, at I, first, I, I ignored the memes, dude. I, I was like, I love this song I, in the movie. I, the, Let's put it. Something's in my ass. <laughs> TikTok sound. Yeah, yeah, they did. Yeah, yeah. My number four is also a very recent film. Even more recent than the Batman, and Whoa. and going a just a little more, n- not more contemporary, but a little more arty and a little more uh, critically acclaimed. Mm. This is and a more emotional needle drop. Um, under pressure from After Sun. Wow, respect from the ending of that film. I res- I is it the best needle drop of twenty twenty two? I think so. I think it might be. I think it just At least might one be. of them, because it's just. The without that scene, without that song, I don't think that scene would have been as devastating. Yeah, and we don't want to spoil. We don't want to spoil after some, but I will say that song does go well with the Paul Mescal character and what has happening in the context of the movie, right? Yeah, he he can kind of he can feel it. He can really feel the pressure coming down on him, and he can't control it. And that's that's part of life too. Sometimes you have emotions that and they strike up and you're trying to just deal with it and the way that wells incorporates the score with that song especially during the dream sequence that is intercut between that dance sequence it's so fucking powerful also i have to commend that song is so well known maybe the most overplayed and you know on the radio in terms of the queen songs Uh, and I wasn't annoyed yeah. when I listened to it yeah, in the movie. Uh, it, don't Stop Me Now would take that cake. You think Don't Stop Me Now is more replay? Stop fucking using it. <laughs> stop making Freddie Mercury spin in his grave even more than he already did. Yeah. My number three, Sister Christian by Night Ranger from Boogie Nights. Let's go. Sister yeah. Christian. <laughs> Just to give context, the scene is Mark Wahlberg, John Marky C. Riley. And Thomas Jane are coked out of their minds going into Alfred Molina's drug dealing house yeah. while a Chinese a random Chinese guy is throwing firecrackers on the side just for fun. It's Cosmo, he's Chinese. That's why he's throwing them, I guess. But this song is just so well timed with just the Alfred Molina character's craziness going up and up and the Mark Wahlberg and John C. Riley freaking out more and more. I just thought it was perfectly and executed. The, and being the point in the film where it gets a bit darker and we're now in the 80s and we're now in a different time in the adult industry where, like, Dirk Diggler is struggling a bit more, it definitely does fit, especially with, with the cheesiness factor. Yeah, do you remember, too, when Molina's like, oh, the course is coming, and he's like, it's true, motoring. <laughs> he just gets so my, into it, and I was like, yes, my, that's how you do a needle drop my in a movie. My favorite in that film might actually be Jesse's girl when during that's a great one the the drug deal scene because it's first of all one of the most nerve-wracking scenes 
in film. Yeah, and Jesse's second of, girl. And second sure. of all, because it's such a bizarre, very stuck-in-the-middle-with-you, like, juxtaposition. One of my favorite close-ups of all time, and I'm trying to be a filmmaker, so I've seen yeah. a thing or two, is that close-up into Mark Wahlberg as he's just, like, coked out of his Sorry. mind realizing how far he's fallen, and they're playing Jesse's Girl, right, in the background, and it perfectly yeah. aligns with the zoom-in. PTA at, a, at at his finest, I think. Yes. What's your number three? Connor? Hello, Stranger from Moonlight. Be- wow, another again, modern one. Again, partly because it's such an emotional scene when Chiron and Kevin finally reunite. And first of all, like you could argue that at first that seems a little on the nose given that it's a reunion scene and he's kind of he's kind of saying that to him Kevin yeah and when as soon as he plays out on the jukebox but mm-hmm. that like it really gets us to appreciate that relationship even more especially since so much time has passed now that they haven't seen each other I think what's good about that specific needle drop too is it adds a little bit of levity to a very very dramatic movie that's you know kind of yeah. a heavy heavy movie to watch and that that song helped me kind of buy the relationship even more than I already did. Yeah. And fun fact two of the films in a row that I've had in my needle drops list have been either directed or produced by Barry Jenkins. Moonlight and an After Sun. That's a sign. Maybe Barry Jenkins has something in terms of skill. Number two? Number two is, ooh, this is might be a hot take for some people, but I, it's my personal list, so let's go. Number two for Bring me it. is Sunshine of Your Love by Cream from Goodfellas. Actually, my number two is also, I, I couldn't decide on one in particular so i just basically put everything in goodfellas at my number two. Oh, okay so yeah we can both talk about I was this just one. like i was just like fuck it there are too many good ones too many good ones to name i think i could put pretty much every scorsese needle drop here except for the u2 song kinks in new york yeah because there's also and then he kissed me in goodfellas during the the iconic copacabana long take yeah because the the ingenious way scorsese uses pop music in that film is that early on first scene is this like big band track over the opening credits then you get into 60s girl group pop um then he kissed me by the the crystals not the ronettes Mm -hmm. and he goes from that to rock with with george harrison and then the the last two major needle drops in the film are um when during the during the heist is Harry Nilsson's jump into the fire, which just adds so much to the pure anxiety that you feel during that scene. And, and let's not really let's not forget the Rolling Stones make their presence known in Goodfellas. In Gimme Shelter. When when they start falling like flies, the gangsters, they play the Gimme Shelter soundtrack. And, and the the end of Layla being played when when all the mafia guys bodies are shown great song in, by the way great song in piles and you really get that sense of just the end of an era with that yeah another the the really great one we haven't mentioned in goodfellas is um is um 
Sid Vicious's My Way in the end credits. Yeah, we didn't mention that. That is a great one. Being, of course, this, like, coked-out punk rock version of a standard being played, like, as soon as we see that uh, the Great Train Robbery close-up of Joe Pesci shooting at the camera as um, Hen- Wall Henry Hill has to live the rest of his life like a schnook and it just like it ends off the film with a bang with yeah. a literal bang and... i have to say i have to say this though the reason i picked out of all of the needle drops and goodfellas sunshine of your love is because it, it combines the story element with the timing with the acting with de niro smoking a cig like that's the thing that for context De Niro in that moment when they're zooming into his face and they play Sunshine of Your Love he's, is, is... He's taking the SIG into his mouth and when the guitar riff intensifies, he starts looking up. It's such a good guitar and, riff. And, he, and like his eye mov- movement, this is a technique that was really pioneered by silent film actors. His eye movement basically tracks to the beat of the track. He keeps he keeps having ideas in his head because Maury, the guy he's looking at in the film, he wants to do some things to him is all I'll say. He is calculating something. Watch the film, guys. Watch Goodfellas. I don't want to spoil it. What's your number one? My number one? Tell me. Okay, I'm ready. I'm going to sing it. Yeah. And I don't know why I'll give it tonight. I got a feeling that something ain't right. Yep. If you hadn't, if you don't know, it is stuck I'm in the middle deformed. with you. It's stuck in the middle of you by I, Steelers I, Wheel from Reservoir Dogs, Quentin Tarantino's debut feature. Let's go. I. It's okay if I could say I kind of predicted that coming. From not me? that it's a bad choice, but it's, yeah, it's a good choice. But like it's, yeah, it's I, certainly ingrained into pop culture at this point. Yeah, there's a guy in a chair. He's a cop. Revealed tied, to be a cop, t- tied down, and is about to get tortured his, by Michael Madsen. His ear fucking sliced off screen, and which is a scene that, fun fact, was inspired by the original Django, a spaghetti western. Which was honestly they, the ear cutting scene in that is more graphic than this one, and that scene. When the film premiered at Sundance, um, Wes Craven, maestro of horror, even he walked out of the film during that because that means it was such, powerful. A, such a nasty scene. And I heard, too, Tarantino was adamant, I, I don't care about Little Green Bag. If we can get it, we can get it, which thank God he did. This, that's another similarly iconic needle drop. But he said Stuck with, in the Middle with You has to be in the soundtrack. I will pay as many dollars and I think he even spent half the budget of the movie just to get rights. just to get Stuck in the Middle with You essentially which it works in the scene because it's literal right? The cop is stuck in the middle with Michael Madsen and his crazy tactics but at the same time it's just such a banger of a song. Can we just admit it? Yeah. The song hits. It's as simple as that. And it again the juxtaposition of the like unna- the naturalness yet unnaturalness with this um, this Dylanesque pop ditty with 
the disturbing violence that is going on on yeah. screen. Also, I'm a sucker personally for when characters get into the song, and Madsen gets into it. He starts dancing, stuck in the middle with you, as he's cutting some of a guy's ear. It's, yeah, it's it quite the visual. Even more like sadistic pleasure to that action. And... Does that, that does that scene work without the song? I don't think so. I don't think, I, so. I don't think, I think the song is literally integral to the scene, which is what we talked about, is these songs, without them being in the movie, I'm not sure the movie's the same, right? No, and that whole film does, does some ingenious stuff with seemingly inappropriate needle drops because, like, during... during uh, uh, chase mm-hmm. you would expect some some riveting action thriller music to be played but instead ooga chaka ooga ooga <laughs> ooga chaka yeah <laughs> and also just for the time too i don't think the soundtrack was used except for maybe scorsese uh used as like needle droppy as In tarantino such a way. except yeah. except maybe easy rider which was one of the yeah way back in the again, 60s like though, a right? pioneer that's a little bit that, ways back and, and cat stevens with um with harold and maud and with simon garfunkel and goodfellas mm-hmm. that's where needles drops were kind of popularized scorsese took it further yeah no Scorsese he pushed it he goodfellas, pushed it where pretty much i the first really great needle drops he did were with mean streets Definitely. when he did um, Jumpin' Jack Flash when you see uh, De Niro as a Johnny Boy. Eh? Yeah. Smoke? But for those that haven't seen Stuck in the Middle with You, like that scene in Reservoir Dogs, go watch it. Good cinema. If you like movies, if you're listening to this podcast, go watch Reservoir Dogs immediately. That's all I'll say. Goes without saying. Okay, you're number, number one. one is going a little further back, but another one where I don't know if the film is the same especially this opening title sequence is the same without it which one and it is not a film we have mentioned at all Ooh. on this list but it is one of the most iconic title sequences Ooh. all i have to all the, the one hint i have to give you is a helicopter sound helicopter sound and napalm oh this is the end do 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 that's my beautiful friend Jim Morrison singing. If anyone doesn't know, the the end by the doors is a about eleven minute song, right? But they they cut it a little bit for yes, apocalypse now. Yes, and they now. use it multiple times in the film and different sections of it in different at different points in the film, and and this one is used when uh, Martin Sheen's character is looking at a ceiling fan, right? And it yes, kind of... and he's having additional visions of of Nam. Mm-hmm. And first of all, the film, the needle drop itself, when the the last lyric you hear before it fades out, and we get to see more of um, more of more of Willard on his bed going insane literally the last lyric you hear is and all the children are insane guess what colonel kurtz some of his followers are children all the children are insane yep it's on the nose which is is that part of what makes it good let's talk about this let's let's talk about this now 
what makes a good needle drop? Is it is it because it's on the nose or not, not necessarily? always? Because if you use music too literally in a film, like mm-hmm. if you use London Calling during a scene in London, don't get me started on how many times I've seen this. Or if you use sympathy for the devil when you have a rebellious anti-hero character, fuck off. <laughs> I don't Jeez, stop. Bad. Don't use that <laughs> anymore. Face don't. Right now. This is the the lazy way of using a needle drop. Mm-hmm. I I shit you not. This that's the thing about this a good is one. Suicide Squad, Cruella, Watchmen. This is how not to do it. A good needle drop. Don't take the song so literally. Yeah, yeah. That it becomes lazy. And don't use also don't use something too well known unless you're completely recontextualizing it. Yeah, that's a good take. I would say this. I think a good needle drop doesn't have to be literal, but it does have to rev- like the scene has to revolve around the music. I think if you just randomly throw it in there and it has nothing to do with the scene, I don't think it's a good needle drop. And I've seen it done exactly like you said, Suicide Squad. Why the heck was half the music in that movie? I'm not sure. Why was I watching they, a music They hired video, trailer dude? editors. Yeah. Was that was that the problem, or was it just David Ayer maybe is not the greatest director of all time mm-hmm. is what we're trying to say. Yeah, but the reason I chose the end in particular is that the song itself being so, so relentlessly dark and so chaotic, mm. it gives you such a peek into Willard's mind. Also, it is it is madness. a song of the time. Like Vietnam, they played the Doors incessantly in the camps, is what yeah, I've so heard. Yeah, so it both like makes sense periodically, and it makes sense for the story itself yeah. and this character, and the scenes where he where the last half of the track, mm. all in, all raga instrumental chaos starts getting used as he f- fights with himself in the mirror and gets drunk like tell me that doesn't haunt you it's, or it's... or later on when he when he goes to kill kurtz the imagery in that movie is, is still in my head dude it's still in my head and i can't get it out because it's such such brilliant filmmaking on francis ford coppola's part yes and and plus the fact that the again the whole opening title sequence well, not even an opening title sequence. There are no titles in that. It just lets lets it play and wash over you and just give you that hypnotic experience. That that you can even like smell the napalm. Yeah. I love the smell of napalm in the morning, as Robert Duvall it once said. It smells like victory. <laughs> well, that about concludes this episode for today. I do want to give a little bit of a scoop on the next episode as we usually do so for the next one we are doing an inside review which stars Willem Dafoe one man show basically him stuck in a New York City penthouse so of course we were gonna love it yeah and then but this is the bigger one we are doing a John Wick review let's go yeah. John Wick 4 we... chapter 4 let's go yes this is this came out this weekend we are seeing it tomorrow night at the moment of this recording, Dolby recording on Friday in Dolby. In Dolby, probably the ideal way to see this, yeah. with the sheer visual style of John Wick, and um, no, uh, I'm excited because the earlier reviews are very are good. 
they're glowing. Some are saying like it's the best yet in the series, or at least the best since the first. Um, and finally, after we do the John Wick review, we're gonna do a rankings of the John Wick series. I yeah. think we have to do that. I do want to end the episode by actually saying rest in peace to Lance Reddick, who yes. was a frequent in the John Wick series. Yeah, sudden death too. Yeah. Um, He's greatly missed. Yeah, he did a great job in the series. I know he doesn't have the hugest part. but And is kind of a comic relief part even. He, I don't think you can replace that actor for that. I, no. I'm going to be straight up. I thought he was fantastic. I'd... Rest in peace. Well, that's going to be it for today. Thanks for listening to Before Showtime with Connor and Marcelo.